are listening to the Good Shepherd Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Our mission at Good Shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. One of the main ways we believe we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word. We believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church. Our desire is to preach Christ crucified for you, which means we hope Jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. I want to thank Judd for filling in last week. Uh, I gave him a, uh, a softball lob across the, the plate, and he crushed it. I'm very grateful for him in that way. Uh, thankful to be able to get away and pick up a puppy and know that the pulpit is going to be uh, filled. So I want to thank him for that. Uh, and man, I, I, what, a, what a powerful word it was for us last week to hear of the freedom we have in Jesus. Freedom is actually about being bound. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, that freedom is all about a kind of binding that we wouldn't expect. It's a kind of prison that we probably aren't looking for, maybe even that in our uh, carnal hearts or natural flesh would not want. It's a freedom that is bound by the love of God, that it's God's love that has finally sought after us like the hound of heaven. He has sought after us and finally we've been uh, tracked down and somebody has arrested us in the love of Jesus. And now we can't get out. This is like Sarah. We are bound to God's love. We are bound to promise. Uh, Remember, Sarah was married to Abraham and because God made promises to Abraham, she could not escape the promises that were made to her by him. She was bound. Right, And this is the contrasting covenant between Sarah and Hagar, who was the slave woman who had a lot to do in relation to getting in on the promises of Abraham because other than just being a slave, she was not in relationship or in union with Abraham, whereas Sarah was. Sarah was bound by Abraham's love and therefore bound to God's love through him. And so are we. We are like Sarah, we are imprisoned to the unconditionality of God's love to us through Jesus. We are bound by the certainty of God's promise in Jesus for us. We are locked into the permanence of God's acceptance. We are shackled to the sufficiency of Jesus's gift sacrifice. And in that way, we are trapped in God's love, or maybe I can say it this way, we are firmly and finally complete. We are locked into a prison of sufficiency. There's nothing outside of the prison walls of Jesus that we need. We're finally there and we're locked in forever. This is one of my favorite lines and one of my favorite hymns. Complete in thee, each want supplied, and no good thing to me denied. Since thou my portion, Lord, wilt be, I ask no more, complete in thee. We're locked in. And because we're locked in, our heart is finally free. Free to love God as much as we want. Free to have his love coursing through us towards our neighbor to the fullest as our hearts can take. Full to love joy. Full to, free to love peace, to have it. Free to in every way enjoy God's goodness 
fully free. Free from the burden of righteousness by due. God's not keeping score anymore. You don't have to either. Free from the weight of having to meet God's expectations. Free from the suffocating choke of guilt from sins past or present. Free from the gravitational pull of you have to or else. Rescued from the raging sea of ought. You're free. You're free to enjoy the reality that God will always be your father and you will always be his child. You're free to celebrate as much as you want and every day, as long as you experience it here, the truth that there will always be more salvation in you than there ever will be sin in you. You are free to abide with Jesus as much as you would like as you rest in his finished work for you. And you're free to move into the life of your neighbor as much as you would like in full peace, asking How can I love you today? All of those things are yours. Maybe I can ask it this way. As one pastor put it, you're free to ask this question. I think this is the question of the experience of the freedom of the Christian. What am I going to do today now that there's nothing for me to do today? Because Jesus has finished it all and there's nothing I have to do in order to get God to love me, like me, or give me something that I don't have, what on earth are you going to do today? And if you don't have in mind the face of your neighbor, you probably need to go back to the prison walls of Jesus' love for you and just sit there and look at all the pictures again. Now that I don't have to serve God today in order to get something from him, who can I go serve? Maybe that's a clear question. This is the freedom that the Galatians were called to. This is the freedom that you and I are called to on a daily basis. But it's not the experience of freedom that the Galatians would always have. And it's not always the freedom or the experience of freedom that you and I enjoy. He says in verse 7, you were running well. Started off great. You experienced this freedom at one time. It wasn't that long ago. Do you remember it? You were running well. But then something happened, like all things do in the matter of Christianity or religion. Maybe I can say it that way. You see, new Christians understand this freedom. New Galatian Christians understood this freedom. New Christians today, right here in America, understand this freedom. I was with a relatively new Christian this weekend. And I was shocked by how much he was actually trying to convince me of how free he was. It's beautiful. I don't have to work up a lot of pastoral gumption to try to get a new Christian to talk about their freedom. They know the amazing grace of Jesus. They know what it means to be free from their guilt. They know what it means to be free from their shame. They know what it means to be free from their sin that haunted them for so long. They know what it means to be free from the law. They know what it means to be free from death. None of those things scare them or burden them down in any way. They are as free as a bird. But good Christians, on the other hand, good Christians tend to lose sight Good Christians tend to start running well and then slow down their pace. Good Christians tend to hop off the path. And there are some times where good Christians actually refuse to obey. Obedient Christians are the first ones to abandon real obedience. 
course, here's what I mean by that. Those who are finally figuring out their own self-righteousness, those Christians, right? Where the freedom of Jesus tends to wear off and religion begins to set in the heart and they begin to buy their own press and think to themselves, I'm actually pretty good. Where they once needed Jesus, now through their own self-righteousness, they only need Jesus so much. They're only free free so much, I can say it that way. They only need freedom from Jesus so much because they have their own set of freedom values. And they've started to buy into their own press and their own religiosity. Those obedient Christians, quote-unquote obedient Christians, which are not actually obedient Christians at all, as we'll find out, Obedient Christians are the first ones to abandon real obedience. Tonight, probably like all the passages that we've gone through in Galatians, might be a little bit of a shock to the system. And so I, who love shocks to the system, will probably uh, harp on that a little bit harder. And I hope that that's okay. And I hope you can see it from the scriptures. And I hope tonight we can learn something. And I think if you are able to hear it, you might just experience freedom. And that's my goal. Tonight, we're going to be looking at freedom and obedience. Freedom and obedience. The nature of real obedience is the first thing we need to discuss. You were running well. You started off great. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This is an interesting phrase, very interesting phrase. You probably did not expect to see the word obedience tucked up into this discussion of Christian freedom, but here we are. And the thing here is they are at one point obeying, they were running well, they were obeying the truth, and then they left something behind and therefore stopped obeying. But if you remember, if you're tracking along the argument of Paul here, he's been trying to prove all along that this whole thing rides on Jesus and Jesus only. Faith only. Trusting him full stop. Jesus, period. You were running well. You had it down. You started with Jesus. Jesus got you in. But then you stopped running on that path and you hopped off that path and you started adding to Jesus. It wasn't Jesus period. It was Jesus comma or maybe Jesus colon comma, 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 all these things. Circumcision, religiosity, church attendance, all these things that we would like to add on top of Jesus to make Jesus more complete. You started well. But then you stopped obeying. I want us to see tonight that in Paul's idea, real obedience is not merely or the sum of moral conformity. Real obedience to Jesus actually isn't about you and what you do. Obedience has another angle, another way. Obedience is actually... Faith. Obedience is tied up in what you believe. Maybe I can say it this way. Obedience is determined by who you're trusting. 
This is not the first time, pause, actually it is the first time, Paul will bring this up and tie this idea of obedience directly to faith. It is the first time because Galatians is the first letter Paul wrote that we have here. So it actually is the first time in our Bibles that he mentions this, but it's not the last time. Maybe it's like, if I can say this, it's not the clearest time either. We're going to bounce around a little bit, but I hope you kind of come along with me. For those of you raised thinking that your obedience is all about you, you might be intrigued by this conversation. I'm intrigued by this conversation. And oftentimes I feel like in certain circles it might get me fired and that's okay, but I stand on the word of God. Here I stand, so help me God, right? So you can follow along with me. Romans 1. Let's do a little, let's do a little track through Romans. Romans 1, uh, verse 1 through 7. If you want to turn there. Paul starts his seminal letter on justification this way. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. What is the gospel? If you want another one of those like summary passages of what is the gospel, if somebody asks you what's the gospel and you're looking for a passage, you got like 1 Corinthians 15, or also you got Romans 1. The gospel of God, verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning Jesus, his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith For the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says the whole goal of what I am trying to do, I've been called and set apart by the gospel as an apostle for one purpose, and that is to bring about the obedience which is faith. Where is he going to bring that about? Amongst the nations. And of course, if you remember the story of Romans, if you unpack the drama of, uh, of Romans, the whole thing that Paul's trying to do is talk about two groups of people, really kind of two types of nations or two nations, Israel and Gentiles, and how both of those groups of people have fallen short of the glory of God. That's chapters one through three is a diagnosis. Jew and Gentile have all fallen short of the glory of God. But then he starts off, Romans 3.24, and starts talking about how they all are justified freely by his grace as a gift in Christ Jesus, Jew and Gentile. They're brought into one big family through him. You could argue, as most people would, that, uh, that the book of Romans is all about the justification of all kinds of sinners by God himself in Christ. And that's not untrue. I think that's just a side argument or the mechanism for the real thing that Paul's trying to explain and that he's trying to get the obedience that is faith among the nations. He wants people to believe Christ. And by by believing Christ, he says, that's obedience. Okay, that's the beginning of the letter. That's Romans 1, flip to Romans 16. I can almost prove this to you. This is where he started, but it's also how he ends. Romans 16 Verse 25, literally the last doxological phrase he gives in Romans. 
Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. So his whole point, the nations must obey God. That's his whole point. How will they do that? By believing in Jesus. What will that accomplish? God justifies everyone in him. That's his goal. And the problem is, if you turn to Romans 10, go to between Romans 10, this is the last Romans. We'll put it all in a package. Romans 10. Here's the problem. The problem is not everybody obeys. Not everybody obeys. Romans 10, verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness that's based on faith says this, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down. Who, who will actually climb the ladder of righteousness, reach up into the heavens, and make Jesus come to our level? No one can do that, okay? Or verse 7, who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? Who has the power within themselves to go down into hell and resurrect Jesus by their own power? Well, no one has the ability to do that. Verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. That's the gospel. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between the Jew or the Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without somebody going to preach to them? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And here's the clincher here for us but they have not all obeyed the gospel. You hear what Paul is arguing for here? He's arguing that obedience is not necessarily tied to moral activity or right or wrong. Obedience is tied directly to faith. His whole goal, Jesus' goal, the cosmic goal of all things is God is seeking for the nations, all nations, to be obedient to him on the basis of faith. And Paul is saying there's a problem that not all have actually obeyed. Not everybody is obedient to the gospel. You can actually go to several other passages of scripture, Paul, Pauline letters, especially in Philippians, where Paul asks uh, Timothy to uh, make sure that people are obedient to the faith. Not just in his presence, but also in his absence, be obedient to the faith. Of course, you can go to Romans 14. Uh, Paul makes it very clear that anything that does not proceed from faith is sin and therefore would be disobedience. Galatians, in our book that we've been talking about, makes it very clear that the law, strictly obeying right or wrong, obeying moral behavior-wise, 
is not in the category of faith. It has nothing to do with faith. And therefore, if it's not of faith, Romans 14, it's sin. It has everything to do with who you believe. Now, we could argue that what is done, what we do, the moral behavior we subscribe to flows from faith. We can talk about that all day long. That's fine. But the core of what it means to obey is tied directly to faith. You might be asking, why why does this matter? Obedience has everything to do with who you're trusting and nothing to do with how you're behaving. Placing obedience by faith alone in a context of this passage of Christian endurance clearly highlights the truth that we are justified by faith alone and we continue to be sanctified by faith alone. You were running well. You started strong, justification. You started believing. You started obedient, Jesus and Jesus alone. But who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who hindered you from continuing on in obedience? Who who hindered you from being sanctified the same way you were justified? By faith alone. Trust, rest, full sufficiency in him. Looking to him and him only. Not not looking to yourself on the basis of the law and your performance. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? That's his question. You see why it begins to make sense? There are a lot of Christians who know that Jesus justifies you freely on the basis of faith, but I mean a lot of Christians who are not so convinced that they are sanctified in the exact same way, that their obedience is actually tied to resting in him, not you and your faithfulness to him. Does that make sense? A lot of Christians have a hard time simply being at rest in their soul and act and and think to themselves like, ah, this is my sanctification also. I am growing in this. They feel like when it comes to growth, if I have to obey, God wants me to obey, then I got to be busy. There's something I got to do. And there's a long list of religious things. Instead of obeying the faith, And saying it is finished. There's nothing for me to do today. I am fully pleased because of Jesus. I'm fully loved. I have all the righteousness I need. To swerve from faith alone back into a life of law. There's a couple things we need to see back in our passage here. You can look at verse 8. To swerve from faith alone back into a life of, of law. First of all. A, is not from God. This persuasion, hopping off of faith alone and back into a life of obedience by merit or obedience by moralism, this is not from the one who called you. The one who called you, called you by grace. The one who continues to sustain you, sustains you by grace. He grows you by grace. It's the same way. This persuasion that you've got convinced in your mind that you have to go do something for God is from some other place. And it's not where you think it's coming from. But also, verse 9, it's actually to miss the entire gospel. Verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. This is, I could, could, get, could get more graphic, but I'm not going to get more graphic. If I spit into your brownie batter, mix it around... What has been ruined? The whole batch. 
You're not eating one brownie. I promise you. Maybe it was spit. If it was something else, if it was another bodily fluid, you would not be eating those brownies. I promise you. That's the picture. A little leaven contributes to the whole lump. You ruin everything by adding something. To add something to the gospel is to miss the entire gospel. To bring a little bit of you have to or I ought to or I must into the it is finishedness of Jesus is to take it from all good news into all bad news. It ruins the whole thing and it's not from God. To swerve from faith alone back into the life of law is not from God. It's to miss the entire gospel. It's all or nothing. Remember what was talked about last week, Galatians 2, uh, Galatians 5, 2 through 4. This is last week's passage. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no help to you. Throw, just, he's not going to be of any service to you if you add one thing. I testify again that every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated by himself then to keep the entire law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have completely fallen away from the grace. It is not, you, you can't have a grace mixture, a grace cocktail. You can't, that, it's impossible. There's no such thing. Grace exists in its purity or it's not grace. It's everything or it's nothing. There's no mixture in between. There's no Jesus plus you equals something. It's just Jesus or it's you. To swerve from faith alone back into a life of law is not from God. It's to miss the entire gospel. It's all or nothing. And it's also in danger of incurring judgment. Verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord. I trust him. I trust his sufficiency that he's going to keep you. I'm a little nervous, but I have confidence in him that he has the power to sustain you. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But the one who keeps going on missing the gospel, the one who keeps going on in disobedience, that person has no surety of his soul. And remember, we're talking about not disobedience in terms of like moral or immoral activity. We're talking about obedience in relation to the faith, obeying the faith. A person who continues on disbelieving the 100% news of the gospel, who wants his own way based on the law, is susceptible to judgment. He will bear the penalty, whoever he is. And my, my friends, it's the same way for us. This is why we must continue repenting and believing, going back to the good news, as if we would ever want to leave it. But it gets troubling when the law comes and haunts us, doesn't it? as if there's something we have to do. The freedom that not only comes the, the freedom that only comes through faith in the gospel is the only thing that produces the fruit of righteousness in our lives. We'll talk about this a little bit more in coming passages, but it's hinted here at our passage. To disobey the gospel will not produce the fruit that you think it it'll produce. We go to the law because we think the law will at least produce in us a kind of morality that we need, right? The kind of things that pleases God. Well, I should go to the law for that, where God clarifies what's right and wrong. Paul is saying that would be disobedient to the faith, and it produces nothing. It's disobedience. It's the thing that 
God clearly doesn't want. It's the thing that's antithetical to the, to the gospel. So here we learn very clearly, it's hinted at, it's good, we're going to get a little bit deeper in the next couple weeks. The freedom that only comes through faith in the gospel is the only thing that produces the fruit of righteousness in our lives. Next, we'll look at the offense of real obedience. The offense of real obedience. Verse 11, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Let me uh, read to you the message remix version. Uh, It actually is, sometimes it's humorous, but other times it's actually really helpful. And I think in this little verse, it's very helpful. Uh, There was a rumor that Paul was still in some places and in some pockets teaching that actually Disclaimer, circumcision is actually very important and everyone should be circumcised. There's a good chance you might not get in if you're not circumcised. That was a rumor circulating and Paul wanted to squash that. This is the Galatians uh, 5.11 message remix. As for the rumor that I continue to preach the ways of circumcision as I did uh, pre-Damascus road days, that is absurd. Why would I still be persecuted if that was the case? If I were preaching that old message, no one would be offended if I mentioned the cross now and then. It would be so watered down, it wouldn't matter one way or the other. I think that's actually a beautiful, common translation. If, man, Jesus plus something, everybody loves that stuff, man. Like, everybody is totally fine with tell me what to do and sneak a little Jesus in there because you can't not have Jesus. That, man, that is super palatable stuff. That stuff's easy. That's great. I mean, we love Jesus hanging around, but at the end of the day, I kind of just want the keys to the car. Let me run my Christian race. Let me be the one who is the founder and perfecter of my faith. Let me be that person. I'm, I'm totally fine with that as long as we can just include, don't forget Jesus. I mean, it's really, I don't know, just kind of like, it's nice when Jesus is along for the ride, right? Jesus, take the wheel or... You know, Jesus is my co-pilot. That kind of message, no one gets mad at that. But Paul's saying, but you guys want to kill me, just like you killed Jesus. I'm being persecuted for this stuff. That's how I know it's real. Because I know that the gospel of grace rubs religious people the wrong way. It actually rubs the natural person, any person born on a planet, Because the world's operation is the operation of law. It's the elemental principles of this world. When you say, I'm going to give people a handout. I'm going to give people free things. And they will be my children. That rubs all of us the wrong way. That is offensive. That is hard to process. Jesus plus at the end of the day, give me the Ten Commandments and I'll go crush those things. That's fine. No big deal. Give me just Jesus, free gift, unconditional love, indiscriminate acceptance. Yeah, that, that'll raise some, some hackles on people's, on people's fur. To the religious, as long as you are preaching some law, it's okay to mention the gospel here and there. But if you insist, like Paul, on preaching only Christ and him crucified uh, as opposed to the law, then the gospel will always sound offensive. If you, like Paul, insist 
on preaching only Christ and him crucified to the exclusion or to the opposite of the law, then the gospel will always sound offensive. We're not there yet. Galatians 6, if you want to look through there real quick, Galatians 6, 12 through 15, you'll see Paul hint at this very thing. It is those, this is uh, 6, 12 through 15. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. They want to put on a good show about what they can do and about what you can do too. In order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. They want nothing to do with the discomfort of grace and free gift. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast in anything except the cross of Christ Jesus our Lord, by which the world has been crucified to me, along with the elementary principles of the law, and I to the world. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but a new creation. Paul makes it very clear, far be it from me if I'm going to boast in anything except the free gift of Jesus, cross and blood, suffering and sacrifice in that way. What you do, verse 15, circumcision, what you don't do, uncircumcision, doesn't mean a hill of beans. The only thing that matters is God doing a miracle in your heart to raise the dead. New creation. See, what we don't understand is that for Jesus to fulfill the law, he had to go down. Not up. For Jesus to fulfill the law, he had to descend in ways that would go backwards against the reality of the law. We want to talk about him in, in the glory train of salvation or the, the path of personal progress of sanctification. You want to talk about somebody who is crushing Christ's likeness? See nothing more than Jesus in his glory. But Jesus wanted to become holy, if I can say it that way. He was holy. But he wanted to demonstrate his holiness in a particular way. So what did he do? He had to come down. He went against the grain of religiosity and he became a baby. Why? So that he could serve and hang out with you and me, prostitutes and tax collectors. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And in that way, he was the most holiest of all lords. He did that and fulfilled the law. That was what it means to love God and love neighbor. He went down. And so it is, my friends, if that is how we are going to know and understand Christ, that's the direction that God calls us to go in our sanctification, not up in personal progress, but down into the places where our love can be spent, where our righteousness can be spent. And that might cost you something. I'm telling you, amidst the religious, it's going to cost you. If we're going to have a church full of broken people that Jesus needs to resurrect from death to life, it's going to cost us something. People are going to look at our church with like a third eye of like, you guys are weird. Say, praise God though. Because it's like from death to life, that's what we're working through. What you do or what you don't do doesn't mean a hill of beans, but a new creation? Boy, howdy, that's on the other side of this world, man. That's on the flip side of this created order. And it runs against the grain of law and lawfulness. For new creation to exist, 
God must work wholly on our behalf. He must be the one doing. We must be the ones receiving. We must be needy. That means he receives the credit. That means the spirit is in control. When you are filled up with everything and like Jesus, God sends you down in order to explain his righteousness and explain his holiness to this world. And he sends you to needy people around you. My friends, I'm telling you, you don't have a lot of control over your sanctification at that point. In fact, you don't even know what's going on. You got that person with that obscure need. I don't even know how to help you, man. You're stuck in a pit. I can't get you out. I can sit with you here on the bathroom floor, man, but all I can do is weep and cry. In fact, I'm just going to shut my mouth, man. I think that's the best thing I can do to love and serve you, just to hang out with you. Jesus is going to have to be the one to work, and the Spirit's going to have to be in control of that. And there is no real lawful measurement against betterment or health or progress at that point. Paul's desire is for the real thing, real obedience, not the fake put on stuff of moral progress. That stuff is relatively easy. But going and sitting with somebody on the bathroom floor in that situation, you and I can't do a thing. And in that moment, you might see the spirit of God working where the only thing that's needed, the only thing that's wanted, the only thing that you can't do is what he'll do, and that is raise dead. And God looks at you and sees a little bit of his son as you stooped down from your holiness meter and went down into people that can't help themselves, and you said, I'm just like you. Paul gets a little frustrated, and honestly, like, I feel it in myself. I would get a little frustrated too. I get frustrated with my own sense of religiosity because it keeps me from helping real hurting people in ways that actually raise dead. It's, it's the fake stuff that I easy, I just so easily want to put on people. Hey man, just like, here's a better way to get a better day tomorrow. We need raising of dead. I can't, I can't do that. And so when Paul says that there are people that are troubling you who want the fake stuff, he goes in verse 12 and says, I wish that those who would unsettle you would emasculate themselves. They're asking you to circumcise them. They're asking you to circumcise yourself. I wish that they they would just go all the way. Chop it all off. It's harsh words. But you can sense the burden in his own heart. It's all or nothing. It's real or it's fake. What are we doing? I love this phrase from this quote from Luther. It ought to be the primary goal of every Christian to put aside confidence in works and grow stronger in the belief that we are saved by faith alone. You want to know what growth in Christianity looks like? Growth in Christianity means leaning more on Jesus' sufficiency and less on yours. Real obedience is simply trusting in his obedience for you, not your obedience for him. It's about trusting in his faithfulness, not yours. It's about trusting in his love for you, not your love for him. It's about trusting in his sacrifice for you, not in your sacrifice for him. It's about trusting in his work for you, not your work for him. And as you obey this gospel, as you believe and trust that it is all on him and it all in him, I have everything, you will really begin to believe that it is 
finished. And my friends, you'll be free. You'll be free then finally to go find the person who needs you most and go down. Give up your moral progress and go hang out with the riffraff of society. Go hang out with the people in this church who need to hear something that you know deep down inside. Jesus raises dead. My friends, this is true obedience. There's a real, there's a real sense. Of, I, I do care what you guys do. I do. I do care what you do. Okay. I'm not saying I don't care what you do. But I think if you understand the real thing, if you understand Jesus's real gospel, and you understand Christian freedom as God has presented, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. If you understand how free you are, trapped in God's love, then my friends, I kind of have. No worries about how the spirit will then move you. And I'll get a little scared because the spirit does things that even I as a pastor don't like. He might move you away. He might tell you there's something else you got to go do and it might not be Good Shepherd Bible Church or whatever. It might not be the ideas that I have for you. But it'll be God's plan. It'll be God's spirit working in you. And so in that sense, like, yeah, it'll be a little bit scary. But man, I trust the spirit of God. He's, he's going to do it. He's promised to do it. So I just want to encourage you. I, I do care about what you do, but, but understand, I care about your real obedience. I, I care that you know what it means that you're free. I care that you know what it means that it is really finished for you. And that because that there's nothing you have to do today, that there's plenty of things you might, by the Spirit of God, be compelled to do. And to listen to those things. To be about those activities. It really is finished, guys. It really is. He has settled every score. And he loves you fully. There's nothing you have to fear. Death, the law, sin, guilt, nothing more. You're free to move about the country.